Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. When was the last time you really paid attention to the details of your surroundings? When have you actually noticed the stonework and architecture on an old building? Take that level of observation and apply it to the rest of your life. How much attention do you pay to the details of your daily habits, to your schedule? I'd be willing to bet that the level of discipline most men possess these days is more akin to the stale, uninspired, modern-style buildings we see peppering most skylines. My guest today, Arthur Constantine, is someone who takes a different approach. Arthur and I have come to know each other over the last few years since he began the then-anonymous account Blood and Rain, and he is someone I'm consistently impressed by when it comes to discipline, drive, and wisdom that he possesses for his age. All of these behaviors build toward becoming anti-fragile, a concept based on Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book of the same name and the name of Arthur's fitness coaching. Arthur and I haven't had a chance to catch up for a while, so this podcast covers a lot of ground. We go into how to positively use social media to build, anonymity, Jordan Peterson, anti-fragile fitness, the masculinity space on the internet, writing well, how to work hard, and a ton more. So enjoy this episode of the Nomad Strength Show with Arthur Constantine. everybody welcome back today i'm joined by my friend arthur constantine from the page on instagram you may have followed called blood and rain uh arthur and i have been the it's such a strange thing saying we're like internet friends you know what i mean (laughs) like (laughs) but that's like so many people i i that are like my actual friends from the last couple of you know three or four years specifically are like yeah i met these guys through instagram and Twitter and like all these other things. And they're like actual friends, you know what I mean? So it's kind of strange, but man, I'm, I'm glad we were able to carve out some time and catch up. It's been a long time, man. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, dude, it's my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. And I think that's pretty accurate, that whole bit about the internet friends. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's like the more you get sort of like separated, you know, like the more you differentiate yourself from the people around you who are kind of doing, you know, a one note type thing. And then we get chucked into, you know, being sardines in our houses for a short period of time for COVID. You start finding yep. the people one way or another you want to, you want to converse with and be around. So I think it's kind of inevitable when you think about it. And it's kind of cool. I mean, that's one of the really good things about, you know, we, you know, it's pretty easy to talk about all the, the bad parts of social media, you know, that's a, that's a pretty easy conversation to have. But one of the good things is that ability to find people that you can actually connect with and become actual friends with that, you know, barring some crazy circumstance of you just happening to be in the same exact place at the same time, that would never happen. And so it's kind of, it's really kind of special when you think about it that way, like being able to connect with people all over the world. Like some, I mean, I would consider many of my, my close friends right now, you know, I've only been together in person a couple of times and they don't live even on the same part of the continent as me. And it's kind of, it's just kind of cool when you think about it that way. Big time, big time. I mean, if you would have asked me like to, I mean, I met my girlfriend soon to be fiance through my page. She shared my writing on my birthday and that just, you know, kind of set both our hearts on fire and we are where we're at now. And, you know, I met, People who, I mean, are going to be in my wedding party through Instagram. Um, I've met business partners through Instagram. Um, I've had my perspective shifted by guests I've had on my podcast. You know, people I'm writing with. So it's yeah, it's not really something you can ignore anymore. And if, I think if you don't sort of adapt to the fact that the internet is here to stay um, and use it to your advantage and grow the discipline to be able to detach from it in order to in order mm. to be able to properly use it. Yeah. Um, that's the way forward. And if, if you think you can be a Luddite at this point, I mean, good luck to you, honestly. That's a, a man. And there's a lot of that in a, in a section of social media. You know what I mean? Like it's the, it's the longing or the, the assumption that it all is going to just burn up and we're going to go back 200 years one day, which, you know, very well could happen. But, like the expectation that that's going to happen is like I'm going to completely detach from everything internet connected just because it's never going to work. Like it's still, you know, I think people probably had this back in the late 90s where it's like, oh, this internet thing is never going to work out. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like, I think there's still like a big section of people that, are, that feel that way about even where it is right now. And like, oh, it'll all cave one day, you know, which you know, some EMP somewhere might do that, but like the chances of that are slim. So like you said, you might as well just get comfortable and do it in a way that actually is beneficial for what you're trying to do in life versus like letting it consume you, which most people do nowadays. And, uh, it's just such an interesting, cause I mean, I, I'm sure you have done, have struggled with this too. Like, I mean, I've talked about it several times, even in the last couple months on the podcast, but just that that constant struggle of like, do I really need this? Like, can I just get rid of all this and not pay attention to Instagram or anything like this? And then I'm like, well, I can't because 80% of my business comes through this. So I, yeah. I can't really just peace out one day. Like I can build it to where I need it less and less, but that, that struggle of, I really don't want to be on this at all. But then at the same time, like there is use in it and it's just a matter of, putting systems in place so you can do it beneficially for you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, 
you know, I don't think I've ever really had this like want to completely detachment, which I, mean, I may be, you know, the minority in that. Um, maybe because like I could just I could just sort of recognize the fact that, um, like like I said before, this isn't going anywhere. Um, I kind of grew up right at the point where like people were starting to have personal computers, like that was a norm. And my father was always ahead of the curve because he's been in tech since tech was a thing. Um, like literally been in tech since 1971. Like that is, as I think as early as it gets for tech. Um, and so like, I kind of knew that this was going to be a part of life from a young age. And um, I think I always had a pretty healthy relationship with it. I didn't have a Facebook till I was like a junior in high school. Um, I didn't have an Instagram till I was 18. And I said, okay, it's there when we need it. Um, but being, I don't know, maybe being an only child in the Bay Area growing up, like I knew how to detach from it from the get-go. So the only instances I sort of had is kind of always checking myself on that gradient of how much you're living, how much am I living in real life? How much of my content is like actual content stemming from me and not content for the sake of content? Because I think everyone falls into that trap. Um, I've always seen that, I wrote about this like about a year ago. I say the days I really try to quote unquote focus on writing, you know, and not necessarily editing. Editing is a different process, but original writing before I do anything else, whether it be reading or fighting or lifting or speaking to my loved ones or praying, you know, praying first, first part of the day, um, then the, the words don't come. But I find, you know, I'm, it's when I was still bartending back in the day. I've been standing and moving around behind the bar for like 10 minutes or I'm like three rounds into my sparring session and all of a sudden all the words are coming, all the concepts are connecting. And so my, my biggest issue is like really managing the pipeline properly where it's like you need to live and read and pray first before you write and put out content. Um, and to be honest, like in terms of consumption, um, I don't really have a big consumption problem on, on I mean, we, we met through Instagram, so we'll just use Instagram as an example. That's a start. But, yeah. um, I think Instagram, I know, I never really struggled with the consumption aspect of it because I always just subscribed to the people who I wanted to read, like you, nature, Chad, letters from the ruins, um, you know, these, these early guys that kind of popped up like this, you know, about two years ago now, um, around the same time I popped up. But since the, the recreation of Instagram and TikTok's image, um, I think attention spans have really dwindled. And Instagram is no longer a place for people who post like an aesthetic image with a really thought out, well thought out caption. So that's seen me migrate to Substack and Twitter, like more text driven sites. So, I don't, I don't really, um, with the exception of anti-fragile fitness, I'm not a reels guy. Anti-fragile fitness is actually going to be predominantly reels as opposed to blood and rain. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's, if it's a, if it's a training, you know, it's a training page. You know, right. You want to see the training being done. You don't, yep. you don't just want to see, you know, five piece white papers from Vahav Shansky. Um, right. no one's going to, no one has the attention span on Instagram to read that. <laughs> right. Um, but since my, my, my issue was like getting kind of blackpilled with the reinvention of Instagram and TikTok's image, but me go, moving to a long form platform like Substack as my main platform and having Which everything is awesome. come from that. Like, Substack is so great. It's, it, I, you know, I started mine, I, I mean, I created it 
maybe a year ago, but really didn't start doing anything with it until maybe three or four months ago. But like, it's one of my favorite platforms for, because I love writing. I mean, and I love reading good writing, you know what I mean? And so it's awesome for that because there's so many awesome writers that like, it's just, that's the platform that's for writers right now. You know, it kind of was like the Twitter thing for a long time. But even like you said, with Instagram, for a while there, for a couple years, it really was like this cool, like you could post this wicked image and then like the writing and the caption was like this, you know, small essay, you know, what they weren't long because they're capped by characters, but like it was really cool for a while, like what you guys were doing and what Flo was doing and um, and then it changed and now, yeah, it's essentially just TikTok 2.0. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think it, it was nice while it lasted, but I don't think that mm-hmm. that's coming back. And, you know, there are yeah. a couple guys who do really good with slide pieces, right? I mean, I've did some of my best pieces with slides, mm-hmm. um, but those people are usually talking about masculinity itself, which I typically don't do because mm. I just, it was kind of always obvious to me, so I don't want to write, write about it, honestly, right. um, or femininity or mm-hmm. male to female relationships like wisdom of kings is a perfect example his powerpoint slide um, format for masculinity fatherhood and you know yep. marriage it's perfect for that yep. but for stuff i want to write about people aren't going to like stop and read slides about it right um so i mean substack is quite literally the the social media platform for long-form content it has long-form pieces interacting with each other so you're actually encouraged to have a longer attention span so I actually find it to be a net positive compared to Instagram right now. Unfortunately, I would say it's a net negative for people's mental health and attention span and consumption of content because the content is getting watered down um, immensely. So my, my whole thing of putting being Substack as the top tier and, you know, I'll put excerpts in Instagram and Twitter that has like mm. quelled any problems that I've had with social media lately. And that was actually just going to be my, my next question was how do you, how did that change how you put whatever on Instagram? Yeah, I mean, what I've noticed Let's is lay down. the pages that, the pages that are really successful on Instagram, they post like a format of three posts, right? They have like, whether it's, it doesn't even matter what it is. Like I know one, I think Recovering Overthinker has like one, like, written piece and one kettlebell like kettlebell workout video and then something else oh yeah yeah yeah. they really like that like three piece type thing and i don't know maybe coming from such like an artist background i never wanted to do that i was like no fuck you guys i'm gonna do my own thing and that that worked for a while (laughs) (laughs) um you know like you know violent artist is very much what was coming out of me um but now i mean now that i'm running a business um, and I want my writing to be seen, to be honest, because I'm writing with much more of a purpose now, um, which I can get into later if you'd like. But now I'm needing to find that, like, I need a structure that people can, you know, rely upon. They know what they're getting. And um, but at the same time, um, not getting away from like the essence in which I was writing in the first place that a lot of people like really come to me for. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be anybody else. I'm trying to get into new topics with that same essence, which is tricky. Um, I'm not going to write like a, well, I shouldn't say that. Letters from the Ruins and I, when we podcasted together a year ago, I found out that him and I are almost, are almost not, I wouldn't say identical, but the most alike I've ever seen. We just express mm. our views in very, very different ways. Him being mm. 
you know, uh, just 100% Anglo, uh, me being, you know, a Southern European blood guy from the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, the, the, the struggle has been to keep blood and rain, blood and rain, and um, and sort of branch out into new topics as part of the new overarching mission statement within these, you know, very different frameworks of Twitter, um, Instagram, Substack, and probably YouTube soon, because mm. a lot of people are saying, like, you should be showing your face more since your face reveal. So. Well, I wanted to get into that with you, too, because for a long time, you didn't. And there was a, it was all a part of it. It was it was fun because I had uh, Flo Modus on last week. Oh yeah, great guy. He's awesome. And uh, and it was everybody, you know, what was it, two and a half ish, three ish years ago. Now, kind of, there was this explosion of anonymous accounts on mm-hmm. Twitter and Instagram, and uh, several of them, yourself included, have since removed the anonymity piece. And so I wanted to, to ask, like, what went into that decision on on why you would want to do that and why you did it at the time you did it? And, like, was that a difficult thing? Because it was kind of, you know, you, you did it for a reason. So what changed that made you want to to come out, essentially, and be like, hey, this is me? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a, it was a number of reasons, man. Uh, it wasn't... This was something I did not foresee myself doing. The original game plan was my idea was that I wanted to keep my writing career and my fighting career separate. Mm. Right? So um, I want you to buy my novels because the novels stand alone. Like they are transcendent novels. Like Led Zeppelin did a similar thing back mm. in the 70s. And they're like, you know, people only buy your albums because you say Led Zeppelin out of his cachet. And then they released Led Zeppelin four with no title. And it was, it's literally the greatest album ever made <laughs> stood alone. Right. Um, so I had like that very like, fuck you. You're not going to pigeonhole me, you know? <laughs> and like, I also didn't want to like write a book and be, have that be the reason why I got a title fight above someone else. Cause I was better at promoting. Like, no, I want to be the guy who's better at throwing bones and breaking jaws. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want you to give me a fight because I wrote a nice piece of prose. Mm. Um, but things, you know, the power of unforeseen uh, circumstances that popped up. People started listening to the podcast and people started, um, you know, people started buying the training programs and seeing, you know, how effective they were. And gosh, I'd say if I would attract the line of events in which this happened, um, I was leaving San Francisco uh, because I was due to COVID restrictions. It was just becoming unlivable, unfortunately, yeah. which I was still very sad about. Yeah. Um, in my last, my last liturgy at Holy Virgin Cathedral in San Francisco, the Cathedral of St. John Maximovich, where his remains are on display, um, you know, I, I was on the bus ride uh, over across town to get back to Oakland for my last bartending shift before I moved to Texas briefly, and I'm now in Chicago. Um, I, you know, I decided I didn't want to write programs and just like, all right, have at it. I wanted to legitimately build men and not just build bodies Um, because a lot of people were coming to me after listening to the podcast about orthodoxy and about writing and about, you know, I would say vitalism for lack of a better term because people Mm -hmm. saw like a very inherent like vitalist tendency uh, within my writing and within my just general being. Um, And I was like, you know, there are a lot of like tough 19 year olds or, you know, older tradesmen who are really looking for that jolt 
um, and that framework to facilitate that jolt within themselves. It became apparent over time that if I'm there, there are two types of accounts that help people doxed and and not doxed, not doxed. They push their ideas much further because like there's a saying, give a man a mask and you'll see who he really is. Mm. And when I was in drama school in England, we did mask class and you saw like things just flourish out of people that weren't there when they didn't have the mask on. Um, anonymous accounts can push ideas much, much further because you can't associate a face with them. You can't find things that discredit them because they're just out there. And then you have to, like, there's nothing in your brain that can effectively negate the idea that you've been presented. And you're forced to marinate on it. Um, Bronze Age Pervert is a perfect example of this. Um, you know, we know there are a lot of wrong or a lot of incorrect things with Bronze Age Pervert. But his points about vitalism and his points about the destruction of Europe have been, like, have been strengthened within the internet world over the past four years. And yeah, you could have picked up, you could have tracked the history of world war one and its effects on Europe yourself and effects on the world yourself, but you probably wouldn't have, to be honest. Right. Um, so I really wanted to keep that idea center, but when it came to the point where I realized I wanted to help people more directly, that can't be done without doxing. Um, and I was also just playing, trying to grow the business. So I was trying to yeah. grow the training business, trying to train more people. And my girlfriend and I sat in a parking lot of a French cafe after church. And he said, we're praying. So what's going on? I was like, I think it's time to show your face. And, you know, that hit me like a brick wall that she was actually right after this prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I did a first video podcast on YouTube. I have to do more. But I took a little clip from that of me just sitting down and saying hi and uh, saying hello. And, uh, yeah doxed <laughs> <laughs> well it, from the coaching standpoint too i mean it helps to know that your coach is a real dude you know what i mean like if you're work if you're working with somebody like the programs can be great and there can be sort of this distance i guess especially if you're doing remote stuff but like the connection that you have as a coach client relationship yeah i mean it makes a big difference when you know like hey my coach is a real dude and i can see him you know yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why that was sometimes a disconnect for me because <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe I've been so ruggedly independent being an only child, being from a place like the Bay Area, having gone like moved to England at 19 to be in drama school where I knew like, literally no one. So my, my whole stance of things like, look, if you really want to fucking do it, you'll get the good instruction and I won't have to like constantly pester you to do the reps. <laughs> like you'll just fucking do them. And I like shortly learned after that's not how personal training works. <laughs> can't, um, can't do the personal training without the personal part very well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and basically, like, I, I figured out later down the line, like, they, all the guys who join anti-fragile athletes, like, they wanted a drill sergeant. I was like, really? Yeah. I was like, I don't know why that was so surprising to be in hindsight, but um, I was still very much in, like, a solo, like, still had lingering leftover parts of my life that said, I'm going to be a world champion fighter, a great writer, and then mm -hmm. when I'm done with that, I'm going to go be a monk and not have kids. When now I'm very clearly on the road to marriage and on the road to having kids. So <laughs> a completely different life now, you know. <laughs> the one last thing I wanted to ask you about the, the anonymity thing is kind of what your thoughts were because it's been, re it's been in the, you know, I don't know, it's not headlines, I guess, but uh, recently Jordan Peterson has kind of been on the bashing of, 
anonymous accounts calling them people, the people who run them cowards. Like, and and I think it's, he's not actually seeing what it is. Like he's referring to one specific type of anonymous account Mm -hmm. and that's just the troll. Right. And and he's blanketing all with that statement. I mean, before I answer that aspect, just as an aside, like Jordan Peterson has not been Jordan Peterson for some time. Let's just just say that for what it is. He is not the 2018 12 rules for life. Jordan Peterson, he has become something else. Um, His whole, his conservative manifesto was quite cringe. Um, And it, it's funny, like his conservative manifesto wasn't very conservative. It was just very like boomer truth from the 1960s, like turning back the clock of the inevitable process that got us to where we are today. Um, and I think maybe because he grew up in a time where the institution still had some validity, he still thinks that's the default setting. But I mean, any anything that isn't like pre-1968 or like some would even argue pre-1945 or 1933 isn't real traditionalism. It's just like you just like this sweet spot of like decaying traditionalism with a side of liberalism. <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's like, that's the, the, the shortcomings of Petersonian philosophy. It's just like, well, it depends on what you mean by valuable. You know, it depends on what, it depends on what, what you value. And it's just like, well, what if, what if pedophiles value, you know, kitty fiddling? Like, you know, these, these hyper individualized bits have some limits, which he really doesn't want to address because it goes against sort of any proto-liberal philosophy, which is really what he is. He's not really a conservative. Right. So that that's like an aside on Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think he his original work is like clearly a net positive. So don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these yep. people who thinks he's completely irrelevant because that's yep. just nonsensical. I would agree. As far as anonymity goes, I mean, he's kind of case in point as to the perils of not being anonymous. Like, you know, he's clearly like without getting too tinfoily, like he's clearly been either has bought into certain um, globalist interests or is being held hostage by globalist interests. Um, so he's kind of making the point for us that anonymity has value in pushing ideas further and, you know, not getting too big because if you get too big, globalists come after you and they subvert you and they contain you. So, um, he's making the point, um, that actually a guy named Neiman Parvini who wrote the populist delusion talked about like to really overthrow the regime, we need like a bunch of small but really organized efforts to kind of communicate with each other and not get too big until the time comes. Um, so I, I think it's a bit laughable what he's saying because he's literally the example of why it's necessary. That's what I was thinking. And that was initially my thought too. I'm like, dude, you're you're making the case against you <laughs> because of the last 18 months or whatever it's been when it I, – I don't know if it was maybe 18 months ago where it kind of took this – weird turn with him. I mean, it was all, you know, maybe it was right around when all of his health stuff was going on. I don't know. But like I said, there was a real definitive, like you said too, there was a real definitive point where something changed in, in him where it just wasn't the same, it wasn't the same him anymore. My, my only like kind of saving, my, my only thing I'm holding out on with Peterson is the fact that he's becoming closer and closer with Jonathan Pajot. And that he's like, it's, he, he's been very open. He's like, I, I feel most at home in the Orthodox Church, like, um, and being Orthodox. That's a I was great like, okay. Jordan impression, dude. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you. 
I, uh, I mean, if, if, if I went through British drama training and can't do like a decent impression, I clearly was never very good in the first place. You know? um, That's great. But um, but yeah, I mean, if he's like in an Orthodox church, like having an ancient truth, you know, kind of holding on to you like that is pretty powerful. I don't know how much that's going to do in terms of freeing him from whatever talking points are being fed mm-hmm. to him. But as far as his soul goes, you know. I'm praying for him, and mm-hmm. I hope the best for his family because he's clearly a very good man who has the best intentions. And uh, yep. he's yep. been under attack for a long time now. A long time, and uh, I wanted to get into actually what you're doing with anti-fragile. Uh, yeah, which yeah. is which is wicked, and uh, because I you know I remember when you had started in, when you were in the early processes of of making it more of a a business, right? I mean, because it was kind of this thing for a while and maybe, I don't know if hobby was the right word for it, but it wasn't something where I remember you asking me like, dude, I want to make this a real thing now. And, uh, I was super pumped because the, the, this experience that you have and the way that you approach it is such, is, is from such a unique perspective that I think it's really cool if, it, you know, and you mentioned already the kind of guys that are generally the guys that, that want to work with you. So I, I want to ask you a couple parts of this. Like, it, it's kind of tough to distill a, distill a training philosophy down into like a, a podcast answer without turning it into another podcast episode on its own. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that. Um, but kind of the idea of anti-fragile as the concept, like w- with your fighting and with everything else, like how did that come to be first? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that iteration came after a little bit and it, I think people have noticed too that on Instagram, like I'm kind of, I've, I've always been somewhat secretive, like and cryptic, <laughs> like with blood <laughs> and rain and, and even, and even anti-fragile fitness to be honest. Um, and I think that just comes from like my, my family origin, like my, my mother's Italian and French bass side of the family, like both those, those, both those peoples, like Northern Italians and French Basque people. If you're kind of an outsider, they look at you like, you don't know me. Like, it's like oh, okay, well, I'm going to see how you are until I say anything to you. And so like, there are things about my family that my mom has like just told me a couple weeks ago that I was like, why did you hold this? She's like, I don't know. It's just the way we are. Um, and I think another aspect of that is like, I don't want people, you know, carbon copying what I do. To be honest. So it's just like, I give them little nuggets and then I bring them in. And they're like, okay, yeah, don't say anything, but this is what we do at Antifragile. Like, oh, but, um, it was originally, you know, blood and train, which was like kind of a right. cheeky, cheeky, little <laughs> cheeky wordplay there. Um, but it, it came, it became evident to me that like, that wasn't a very solid name. Um, and as much as I despise the word fitness, it is the word we have to work with. Yeah. Um, until there's a better word that comes along. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whoever, whoever can run that effective PR job and changing right. the word fitness, you know, hats off to you. I, I don't know if I should be expecting it from Madison Avenue or expecting it to be from com- somewhere else completely. Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think and when I read anti-fragile, um, it was at a very vital point in my life where, I had lost both my jobs due to COVID. I was a full-time cocktail bartender and manager in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, you can take your pick as to which is the best, the better part of the country at cocktail bartending. That's either San Francisco Bay Area or New York City. I've bartended in both. Um, I think the innovation in the Bay Area is stronger 
they actually copy a lot of it because you have Napa Valley there. The Napa food scene kind of rubs off on the San Francisco bartending scene, so on and so forth. Um, and so I lost both my jobs. Um, and I had $3,000 of overhead and I was like very, very depressed at this point because like I had gotten myself where I could like make a substantial amount of money working 30 hours a week with a perfect training schedule for fighting. And I had just rehab my lower back injury. I was like, all right, I'm going full fucking steam ahead. I'm winning the world classic tournament this summer. And then uncle Gavin shuts everything down. Mm-hmm. I refused to take the $3,000 unemployment because that goes against every fiber of my being. And you have to embody your philosophy to actually push it. So I, um, I worked overnight security two hours away, um, for a year and that still wasn't enough money. So I had to get either get overtime. Um, when I got a bar brunch bartending job in a completely different part of the Bay, that's actually kind of conservative. Um, and then one of my jobs opened back up in Oakland, but not the other. So there was a stretch of time where I had 40 hour weekends, like quite literally I was working 40 hours from Friday night to Monday morning at seven. Holy cow. And the only sleep I was getting was commuting on the train back and forth. That's it. Um, and then were stretches of about six months where I was pulling two all nighters a week without realizing it. And I didn't realize it until I submitted my, um, I still submitted my two-week notice to this security job, and I was like, wait, why am I so fucking tired? Oh, I've been pulling two all-nighters. <laughs> like, that's why I'm so tired. And the entire month of June of last year, I, like, spent, like, laying in bed, um, just recovering with the come down, watching the X-Files. Like, I wasn't even capable of anything because the come down was much worse than the actual thing. Oh but in the midst of that, I saw Anti-Fragile, and I just read the base concept, meaning, you know, you gain – with disorder, you gain with chaos, you gain with randomness, you gain with pressure. You take it for what it has to offer. It doesn't mean you live like a fucking barbarian that you have no game plan, but if the game plan goes wrong, you adapt quickly. And that's what I was doing in real time. It's just like, you know, there are people at home who took unemployment and they're masturbating the whole time. And like, I started Blood and Rain and I was work, started working on two books. And I studied immensely to com- completely boost my training knowledge. Um, I just had learned so much despite, you know, commuting two ways, being malnourished, being sleep deprived, being injured. Um, it was just it was the only thing I could do was anti-fragile. Um, no choice. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. And it wasn't just being strong. It was quite literally like it was, it was adapting. And, you know, I had many parts of my fitness journey where I, mean, I was a track athlete, I was a quarterback, um, I was a Muay Thai fighter, so I'm a Muay Thai fighter. I trained with, you know, Tennessee State champion, powerlifting and bodybuilding coaches who really wanted me to be a bodybuilder. Um, I trained with old-time strongmen, I trained with Bellator middleweights, kettlebell experts, um, athletic training coaches, physical therapists, and I learned so many of these instances, like these different styles of training for each that had like these these clear strengths and these clear weaknesses, these clear holes. And I was just like, there has to be a way because you see, especially in the fighting world, weightlifting be demonized, which is just nonsensical. If you actually know how to like lift, prescribe lifting for a striker, um, lifting for a grappler is a lot easier because grappling, you can have tension in your body. If you're sore, you can, you can, you can still win a tournament. If you're sore for a sparring practice for striking, good fucking luck to you, man. Like, your strikes are going slower. You're, you're going to have a long, hour-long sparring session. If your chest is sore, especially, 
you're, you're going to be crushed. Um, so I was like, there has to be a way to effectively train specifically for striking, weightlifting and strength and conditioning and max effort, because I know the higher you raise your max effort, the higher you raise your potential for any respective dynamic effort that you want. Um, and it came to a point where I just created this, like I learned the principles from the great sports scientists on the cellular level. And I was able to plug in these different styles of training to quite literally boost all aspects of training. Um, so strength, parent quality, all power, endurance, speed, flexibility. All these guys were putting on, you know, absurd amounts of strength, absurd amounts of muscle. They weren't sore. Their endurance was up. They were fight ready. They were, um, the new mobility standards are not getting injured anymore. They're not experiencing tweaks anymore. And I was like, my philosophy is that as men, you're not going to say, oh, I didn't get my fucking protein shake. Like, oh, I didn't get this. I didn't get that. Oh, I didn't get good sleep. No, like you should be ready to save a life and you should be ready to kick ass, you know, life saving and ass kicking. And the training should adapt to your given circumstances so you can keep those actual progressions and not just be on maintenance. So the programming itself is anti-fragile, mm -hmm. right, to given circumstances. And it also equips you to be anti-fragile in any given circumstances in life. So that was the whole philosophy of anti-fragile fitness. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't deploy any other kind of fitness even if I tried. How much of it was uh, – and I, I imagine because I, I guess I'm speaking from my own – experience and how I do a lot of programming and coaching when I'm learning is so much of it is experimenting on myself for a while first to see like, Hey, is this actually, uh, what I think it is? Is there still a lot of that with you when you're, when you're coming up with concepts or things that you're thinking about implementing? Do you go through a period of time? Where you're like, I'm just going to test it on myself for a while and see how it goes. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. hundred percent. I mean, I'd say I was a guinea pig for like nine years. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> quite the, literally The 10-year overnight success. Yeah, yeah. It just took me a couple minutes, guys. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, Lionel Messi, he's joking. You were an overnight sensation. He's like, yeah, it took me 17 years to become exactly. Lionel Messi. Um I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I still do experiment to myself a lot, actually, yeah. with like very, 
quite literally like innovation at this point because it's not anything that I read in a, uh, in a white paper. It's not anything I read in a spreadsheet. It's not mm-hmm. anything I read in a book by George F. Zhao. It's quite literally mad scientists sort of taking concepts from maybe each of those things. I'm like, okay, let's see that. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and I also have a couple guys in anti-fragile athletes that are like guinea pigs. They like want to be guinea pigs. And like, dude, whatever mad hat or shit you have, like throw it my <laughs> way. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, Shaq. Okay. <laughs> um, and I've got, I have one guy in a seven day program that's predominantly kettlebells. Okay. And his max effort in every metric has gone up by at least a hundred pounds. His endurance is up. He gained 15 pounds and he went down 6% per six percentages of body fat. Like it has been the most successful program I have. So now I have like this dilemma of like, do I start applying this to all the guys? <laughs> we're um, abandoning everything. We're just doing kettlebells from now on. <laughs> well, I would say it's like about 80%. There's like, a, like we do use barbells, but like the right. main muscular system aspect of it, as opposed to CNS or endocrine or anything like that. Any yeah. That kind of optimization, muscular system, anything involved with that is using the kettlebell. And I was like, I, this worked even better than I thought it would. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I definitely, I definitely experiment. You kind of have to, you have to always sharpen the saw. You have to look at what's next. Um, you know, I think a big thing in the space right now is adhesions on fascia. And some people take Mm. that to like the craziest extent, like functional patterns. Um, I did an analysis of functional patterns. I was just like, this is the, in my opinion, the demonization of max effort, um, the heralding of dynamic effort for dynamic effort's sake. And the like over paranoia of fascial adhesions in the fascial system, thinking that you can't work on both of those, it's just completely it's it becomes a hysteria. Yeah. Um, I think I think people like Ben Patrick who are really good at um, working with people as they do what they do right. while optimizing their fascial system, that's kind of more the way forward rather than joining like a very movement culty thing like gota or functional patterns in absolutes um i think both those systems have a lot of merits but i think that's kind of like the thing that people are, are kind of you know researching right now and that's what i've been on lately um and it's parent text anatomy trains yep um and then i think i think i don't really foresee anything in fitness that's kind of next i mean the whole um and the triple jumps got really popular, but that's just the same to the movement that they've been doing in track forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole peptide science is probably the thing that's going to be in our psyche in the next three years. You know, injecting neuropeptide Y from Wolverines into people in the military, I think that's the next mad scientist we're going to be seeing. That'll probably be researching and sharpening this all with. That just sounds like the beginning of either a horror movie or a superhero movie. I can't tell which one. You know what I mean? Probably both. Probably I don't both. think, I don't think they're, they can be independent of each other. Right. <laughs> it's funny because you mentioned like these, a lot of this stuff that you're, I'm the same way. A lot of this stuff that we look at as things we want to experiment with, a lot of it anymore for me anyways, doesn't come from like studies on what's going to be effective, right? Like it's not like I'm, re- you know, and I do go over those things, but I don't sit and I'm like, ooh, this this one study said there was a 0.2% increase in this if I did this. I'm not going to sit here and experiment with that. But the ones that I'm interested in, I think it was, it was most perfectly summed up. And it's been a while. I had to find it just now because I wanted to read it as, as he wrote it because it cracks me up and it's so true. But uh, Josh Rainier had a awesome 
tweet a couple of months back and he said, I don't care about nutrition studies. I want to hear about the 120 year old Eastern European babushka who eats lard by the spoonful and smokes all day. And the central Asian wrestler from the 1800s who ate 15 chickens and three gallons of milk a day. Give me the legends. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he, that's totally true though. Like I love those things because I'm like, maybe there's something to that, you know? First of all, another great guy, Josh. Um, when he came on my podcast, he practically interviewed himself. I just sort of stood out of the way. It was amazing. <laughs> That's a great way um, to put it. You did the same thing on mine. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you like give him one breadcrumb. He just goes on like this Henry V meets, I don't know, California hippie. Like just He's awesome. Rousing into action. And yeah, I mean – that's kind of like what I agree with for the most part. Like I want to hear about the Pakistani stone lifters and their wedding ceremonies. Like if the man can't lift the stone, exactly. he can't marry the woman. Like that's pretty funny. Um, I want to, I, I think I agree with him for the most part until it gets to sort of like parody culture as real culture. The yes. guy's just like, I just continually add weight each week and a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. It's like, no, no, no. I didn't say to get that stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> Right. Um, I have some. I have some 135 pound Muay Thai fighters who lift more than you and weigh far less than you and can chop down your 200. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, you can you can put that nonsense away, pal. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with them for the most part, provided that precision doesn't get left on the table. Because one of the things I'm finding too. I'm, I'm now at the point where I'm prescribing what weights each of my guys are going to lift mm. in each of their heavy weeks. Okay. And it has a hundred percent success rate. And they're like, okay, well it's like an extra five, 10 pounds a week. I'm like, yeah, this week, but zoom out a year. That's like hundreds of pounds. That's a lot. That, that, if, if, that accumulates very quickly when it comes to weightlifting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, actually the, the, the kettlebell guy. So for his actual strength stuff, that wasn't kettlebells. Like I was writing his head next heavy. we like, dude, I'm just excited. Like just mm -hmm. reading this video. He's like, dude, I feel like a monster. I'm like, yeah, you should. Exactly. Um, so I think precision. Precision has become something in our sphere, and I'm just going to rant about this now for like 10 seconds, that has been seen as gay, for lack of a better term, because we were thrown into a frenzy with COVID of like trust the experts when the experts were compromised. Yep. But now like, and, and you know, you have obnoxious people like, I'm a science-based lifter. It's just like those people have made precision and research look ridiculous when precision and research are what originally were pushing us forward so i just want to keep championing that um well, so that it people makes it, don't it, go it makes it completely like i mean from my point of view i'm mad i know i'm not alone but like i see that and i'm like well i don't really care to read anything you have to say now if you're gonna start the whole conversation by saying that you know what i mean yeah yeah it's it's ridiculous and I think there need there, we need to get our feet back on the ground a little bit as a community because it was getting a little weird there for a second, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think what I, I think what I loved about that that post from Josh and and I you know like like you said you can take it to the extreme with a parody angle of it, but what what I think I'm more attracted to are the things that are more anecdotal in nature. Right. And yeah. like we because of the things that you have like you have said about the, the quote unquote evidence based or science based stuff that has 
uh, like completely disregarded any anecdotal anything about anything. And there's a ton of very important information to be had from anecdotal evidence. Absolutely. Because anecdotal is like right in front of you. And it's like, well, that's not true. I'm like, well, it's true right in front of me right now. So how are you going to refute that? You have to tell me one of two things that this is going to plateau and go away. Or this is like, um, it's not what I think it is. Right. So it's one of those two things. If anecdotal evidence is, you know, it's going to be refuted because most of the time you can't, um, the whole, the whole thing that's cracking me up is the, the smoking bit. It's like, how do people get away with smoking for so long? Like, well, tobacco on its own is great for you. Right. It's when it's laced with rat poison and all the other, you know, <laughs> right. microplastic paper that it becomes something rotten. Um, and, you know, meat is good for you. We know, we've, we've known that for a while. You know, chocolate in its original form is very good for you. So, like, meat, smoking, and chocolate, when you're doing it in the classical way, of course they're good for you. Um, it's not this – it's not as much of, like, a – of like a lost truth archaeological statement that a lot of guys want to make it out to be. You know, it's just the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of these things have really, really have been subverted. You know, and man, man, the smoking because you had a you had a post about that the other day, talking about the smoking thing, and it was hilarious because it was I, <laughs> I don't remember how you worded it, but it was like the decline started when we got rid of public smoking or something like that. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like we really started decline. We really started to grit. Um, what was I, what was I say? We really started um, declining as a society when we banned smoking indoors. But I think that's one of those things. I've seen it a few times, that conversation pop up in the last few weeks. And it's been very interesting because I, that's, that's not a conversation that many people are even receptive to having. You know what I mean? And, it, and that comes from decades of the anti-smoking stuff, which again, like we're not talking about the cigarettes that are laced with rat poison and plastic and all these other things like, like raw tobacco that has been used for, uh, you know, thousands of years. And, uh, that's obviously not the same thing. Um, but it made me think too, cause the other night every year, uh, I usually end up watching it a couple times during the holiday season, but every year, like white Christmas is our favorite a holiday movie, you know, from 1954, Bing Crosby and all that. And like, I look around in those, in those things that everybody's like lean and thin and all this stuff. And I, but in, in the, in every single room, it's just a mist of cigarette smoke. And I'm like, how do these two things coexist when what we know about smoking is true and what we know about health? Like what was happening here? And like, what there's, there's something here that people aren't telling us, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. I mean, Tanner Guzzi talked about this recently too. Like the leanness, like it's so hard to be lean nowadays. And a lot of people have their theories about like pesticides in the United States being far more abundant than Europe. And like you know, people go to Europe, they sleep six hours a day, they're smoking cigarettes and drinking, and they lose weight. It's just so fucking backwards. Um, but I mean, as far as smoking goes, I mean. I'm not going to lie, when I'm sitting at the typewriter with a cigar in my mouth, I'm writing a lot quicker than I am when, when, without a cigar in my mouth. The aromatose inhibitor is real. The testosterone boost is real. Um, I don't know. Norm- 
I've, 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 we don't have and, any way to explain it, but we know something's going on that's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I could, I'm sure I could do like a deep dive study in it, but that's like my anecdotal thing. And I've gotten guys in anti-fragile fitness to hate Tony Blair. I can get them to all smoke cigars on a regular basis. So mm-hmm. if I can do that with um, – I mean if we just think on a, a, a macro a – micro to macro scale for a second, bottom up, which is a lot rarer than people think. If, it, if men started just doing all the things – Mm-hmm. And this is this is been the, I think it has been the point of all of our accounts for like the past two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, if men start doing the things that enable them to be better men, like our society, it's going to be a lot more difficult to subvert. You know, mm-hmm. um, men were smoking cigars, lifting iron, fighting, reading Clausewitz, <laughs> going to church. Like I think, um, you know, reading elite theory. I think we'd be okay. Well, and you look at it, you look at it, and you're like, those are all the things that we've been told not to do for a while now and you're like i wonder why <laughs> yeah why is steak and tobacco been demonized um why are we why are we hearing about something called the ableism now mm-hmm. it's just like it's a virtue to be injured it's a virtue to be you know sickly like this is this is truly shakespeare's biggest fear this inversion of things and so. and a lot of these things too I've noticed, and I've, and and this has come from talking to so many people through even like this podcast or whatever. But so many of these things we like inherently know to do. You know what I mean? There's we don't have to be necessarily taught that they're bad or good for a lot of these things. And uh, I had a few weeks back, um, a friend of mine named Chris Chain who started this uh, this software program called Season Report. It's awesome. It's like a a localized almanac. So you can learn like what all the hunting regulations and like there's a weather almanac so you can plan out gardening and what zones are in like what worked best for you to basically learn how to become self-sufficient. You have this data based on your county and it's an unbelievable database that he's created. Um, But he's also a, he's a, a research scientist that studies muscle tissue and we're talking about like all the things that help build muscle tissue and help heal and help grow and all these things. And I'm like, so what have you, what are you finding that is actually works the best? And he's like, basically everything your mom told you when you were a kid, <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, eat, eat meat and sleep and go outside and play and drink a lot of water. And he's like, it doesn't, you know, that's pretty much it. If we're going to distill it down, <laughs> like, and like, but we have, multi-billion dollar industries that need to tell us that for some reason. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, what's interesting about that though is like I think what we're starting to realize and you know, my my girlfriend has level ten gut dysbiosis, which she's been cured being curing by a really extensive supplement and food protocol by a homeopath um, named uh, John Gregory. What we're starting to realize is unfortunately the environment that we live in now, even those things are starting to have its limits. So we need right. to get more specific and more creative and I fucking hate to say it, more science-based. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. in, in, in order to counteract that, it's like, you know, it's kind of the paleo diet thing versus now. Like we are not, we are not like the people 10,000 years ago. Like mm-hmm. we have become somewhat reliant on carbs and they need to be used in the correct ways with the correct carbs. Even a hundred years ago. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, so we have to understand, too, that it's, it's even, even with traditionalism, too, like we can LARP to an extent, right? 
we need to LARP, we need to get to the core fundamentals of all those things of traditionalism, which isn't just, you know, <laughs> smoking cigars, eating steak, um, <laughs> playing outside. It's, it's faith, it's marriage, yep. um, it's, it's communal um, sanctity, um, it's localism to an extent, it's nationalism to an extent. Um, but we also need to apply it to our epoch. Like I meet a bunch of guys who are like, you know, neo-monarchists. It's like, you know, that's never going to happen in the United States. Like it can happen in Europe, but it wouldn't happen for a while. So it's like, you also need to accept your given circumstances, which is something I tell my guys a lot, honestly. So you need to accept your given circumstances where you're at your fitness before they can grow. Because a lot of you guys are trying to move heaven and earth now and you're getting injured and breaking protocol. Like I, whenever someone like hits a PR in a lift, but they break pro- like my protocol to do it, I roast them in the chat. Like I hardcore roast them and then they get a <laughs> reputation for breaking protocol. And then like, you know, I'll get a message a week later. Hey, Arthur, like my energy levels are sapped. And I'm just like, yeah, because you broke protocol. And within protocol, I'm getting every last bit out of you that I can. And then you're overextending yourself. So don't ever do that again. <laughs> um, but it's what, I'm, it's what I'm getting at is it's like exact. We need to be a bit more exacting as a people. We need to be more exacting as a society because um, to, our, to our given circumstances, if we're ever going to move forward, because a lot of the things we're holding on to are things that are dying inherently. Um, the ideals and timelessness of which we can hold on to and create something new with. Um, but the actual physical structures, you know, themselves. I mean, I had a whole podcast about this with uh, the Saxon Cross. We were talking about like the dying Dixie culture. And for me, the dying like West, like old California West Coast culture that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and we're like, well, can we even assimilate, like if we were both thinking about moving to Texas, like can we even assimilate the Texan culture without destroying the old Texan culture? We're like, that's, a, that's an open question for us. So it's we're realizing that like we can take the ideals of which of traditions and we can move forward accordingly um, to our given circumstances. And this this goes across all concepts now, um, like what we were talking about their nutrition and our practices that make us men or make us women because I train women very differently compared to the way to train men, you know, just on a biological level. Um, but as as a people in all forms of our being, because ultimately I think if we're training, we should be training our being not just your bodies. You should leave a training session feeling like a different person. If you're really present with it, you should feel changed. When you read into good, when you read a book that's monumental, you should feel changed. When you have gone to, to church, you should feel changed. Um, and I think presence, presence in what we do and, and re-embracing of like ritual um, and ritual as a society and whether it be religious ritual in Christianity, in my case, Orthodox, we've held on to rituals for 2000 years or even simple things like, you know, the Kentucky Derby has been, has a bunch of rituals that have been carried on and that's why it still means something. Um, so ritual reverence, presence, um, and exacting nature with all of these things and the application to our epoch as a people, that's, I think that's how we thrive in general. Wellness is supposed to fit us, you know. Most people try to push wellness, but then it kind of turns into like a yoga Pilates essence thing rather than what it should be, you know. Well, and what I've noticed too is the like when you talk about presence, what a lot of people are getting away with using fitness as is some sort of this mindless task to like completely detach for an hour or whatever and not be present in the training session. And like we know that 
you can sure go through the motions and sweat and maybe feel a little bit better. But if you're trying to actually change yourself, like there has to be a level of intention and being very focused on the things that you're doing and understanding, like, I can't just float through this and then expect it to really do anything for me. And that, I mean, that's the training example, but that's, that is a microcosm essentially of what you're talking about across all aspects of us living. Like we kind of float through these things and expect or, or get bummed when nothing changes. Like we well, didn't really do anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a very good way of putting it. Like we're not actually like doing anything. Like we're, we're going through the motions and that's, that's like how you wake up at 60 and wonder what the hell happened. And, mm-hmm. um, if, if you want a good marker as to the way you're not doing that is as if time feels like it's going by slowly and quickly. Yep. If, if things go feel like, like they're going by slowly, it means that you've been present in every little thing while it's going by quickly, meaning like you've been doing a lot and it just brings this, you know, this rapidly increasing pace of energy. Um, that's, I think that's some would consider part of vitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Bronze Age pervert has highlighted Nietzsche and his old bit of vitalism. I'm very anti-Nietzschean because I'm a Christian and he was very anti-Christian. So by nature, I have to be anti-Nietzschean. But his bits on vitalism, I think, actually coexist with the Christian faith as well. Because how many Christians do you know that have sort of like they'll go through the motions yeah. um, and their faith is just it's dead. Like they're still Christians, but it's dead. Mm-hmm. And this vitalism kind of under the hierarchy of Christianity, it kind of highlights this, this like actual presence and all engulfing of one's being in the rituals and the prayers that they're doing. Um, and that makes, you're not leaving anything on the table. Um, when you have this bit of vitalism with your family, like, you know, it doesn't need to be a high cortisol emergency state, but it's just, I need to spend time with my wife. Mm. Because we need to keep connecting because this is what our, our family is built on is this union. Um, in terms of, you know, with your kids, like, yeah, to, if I can go probably a week without, you know, properly being present with my son, he'll be fine. But can, how many weeks can I stack up to the fact where I've lost him and he's reached a point of no return? That's vitalism. Um, and I think that's what we're missing in a society that's grown a little too comfortable. I don't think we should be throwing ourselves under the knife's edge like a lot of people think we should like let's go back to the wild west i'm like no no what we have right here is good we just need to use it the right way you know yeah exactly the the examples that you gave with with the family part i i think there's a man how do i say this It's it's such a short term sighted problem that people have that where everything is in the immediacy. I need this to be changed in a month or, or, or I'm working on this because I have something to, to fix in, in 60 days rather than like, look, we're building something for like a hundred years from now, you know? And the, the what's the, you know, the old saying is, and, and I'm going to butcher it cause I, I'm paraphrasing essentially, but like, uh, the, the, the man that plants a tree that he knows he will not ever sit in the shade in. Yeah. And there's very little of that type of effort being put for something that's 150, 200, 500 years down the line. Like we don't, 
there, there's so little of that type of thinking right now. And that's evident in a lot of the ways that people act currently. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it kind of goes back to, um, kind of goes what you're back to you're saying in terms of, um, just attention span, right? It's just like, if I can't see the fruits of this now, um, if I can't see the fruits of it now, then why would I do it? Um, then people just aren't going to be interested in it. Um, no one, no one's down for, um, the long haul. No one's down for, um, truly building something grand. You know, that's such a lame thing we hear all the time. Rome wasn't built in a day and it wasn't, <laughs> but it wasn't. Um, and how can you expect to heal society, heal yourself in a day? Yep. How can you expect to, you know, make the world that you want to be in, in a, even a decade? Yeah. Like, I, to be honest, like being in Chicago now, it's, it feels like being in, in old Rome mm. in the sense that like, there are some things like I stood at the fountain in Grant Park and I looked ahead and it looked like a directly in front of me. It looked like a bigger version of Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. And I turned to my right and it looks like Central Park East in New York City. And I turned around and this beautiful clear water lake. I was like, this is just immense. This is incredible. And like the park itself, like I know they tried making it look like Paris. And for a split second, I thought I was in one of the Parisian parks. And then I, I kept hearing about Harold Washington Library. And I was like, wow, okay. And I saw the picture of the top floor that looked like something out of France. And I walked into it and it's just like this... It was the most underwhelming thing I've ever experienced. It's like on the outside, it looked beautiful. It's like red and green trimming. It's like 10 floors. But I walked in, it's just like this dystopian, fluorescently lit, mm. like hell hole of malnourished people kind of like playing, looking at TikTok while half studying. And I went to the top floor and I was like, when you look closely, it was poorly built. And I was just like, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Like this mm. didn't happen overnight. Like these things that we hold dear have been like that face upward had been subverted over a long period of time. And then I was like, there has to be like a nicer library <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> and I like found one that had like Roman arches and I'd been there since 1904. And nice. like, I think, I think it's like a full service, like research library in the sense of you, I forget the actual name of it, but you have to have like a copy of every book ever made. And you have to go to the librarians to actually get the book. There's nothing on accessible shelves. Oh, wow. And I was just like, like we need to get back to that. But I was just, I was like, my girlfriend and I were both having like an existential crisis about it. Like we needed, <laughs> we decided to like get on the L and go back, you know, to River North to look at the Tribune Tower for like a palate cleanser. We were like, oh gosh, okay, thank God. Like, it's okay, it's okay. And, but I had the same thoughts about San Francisco when staring at City Hall. That's just immensely like the energy there is just powerful. Um, or other old San Franciscan places, like even the De Young Museum, which isn't even neoclassical architecture. I'm like this is like upward facing. Like they're striving. Um, and I, I've had these thoughts for a while. I'm like, how the hell are we going to get back to this? Like, how the hell are we going to, and I'm like, this is going to take years. This is going to take decades. This is going to take a fucking century. And like, it was kind of in that moment where I like things kind of put, were put in perspective for me. Like, you know, my, I've, I've said this to only a couple people recently, but like my, I think most long-term tangible goal, because fighting has a shelf life. Writing you can do till your nineties, right? So you can, you know, be on your deathbed and win a Nobel prize in literature. I'm like, cool writing isn't a full-time thing 
and neither is fighting really when it comes down to it. Like, yes, I am a full-time fighter, but like, no. And I needed something that I could really like creation based on my feet that was serving a purpose. Like my long-term goal is to be like a modern industrialist mm. is for like anti-fragile fitness to become a million dollar training business to then get into like a clothing brand to dip my feet in American manufacturing mm. and then step into American manufacturing. Because if you track the history of, of empires, um, you know, Britain was, you know, was top dog for 300 years after they beat the Spanish in the English Channel. And they, you know, they were very big in domestic manufacturing until they got too comfortable and they started relying on the profits of the Ford Holdings. And post-World War II, they had nothing to fall back on and they're quite literally now just the client state of the global American empire. That could happen to us. Mm-hmm. And we don't have like land possessions, but the petrodollar, right? If military might dwindles, which it is a little bit, and the petrodollar is replaced, that's pretty catastrophic for us if we don't have domestic manufacturing. Now, luckily, COVID, COVID with China um, has made us like see a resurgence in American manufacturing. But the person who really honed on in this first for me was Jocko. Yep. It's like, I want to make jujitsu geese and jeans here in America, and yep. I want to serve my old community in Maine. I want to give people, you know, a livable wage and, you know, a great, you know, quality goods and this will eventually bring the prices down if all of america is like that if america had like four or five new henry fords um you could act you're actually building things physically now we're moving away from like the virtual tech bit where it's like oh we have these fortune 500 companies and you know it's basically like we're doing so great it's just like well if you're not in software you're screwed and software the software companies aren't actually building anything to revitalize this nation they just have a serious amount of capital and they're giving us great software. And in the case of Apple devices and Amazon, you know, quicker packages. Right. But no one's actually building anything like Henry Ford built up Detroit. And I was, I was thinking about this as like someone needs to do this. And this might be the most thing. The thing I'm most passionate about is like mm. rebuilding society in a way that's actually healthy for the human psyche. And I said, that's probably going to take my entire life and probably a couple of lifetimes after that. But have at it then. Like that is kind of the conclusion I've come to, honestly. Well, and as we kind of transition into into closing this, because I think this is a great kind of segue into what we're really talking about is how do we take these things that we're looking at as multi-generational plans, right? Like, th- like we said, things that y- you and I will never see the benefits of, but how do we take that and distill it down into like actually actionable items each day to perform? Like what, what is your, you know, like for the guys that you coach, like what is your, or even for yourself, how do you distill those things down to actually give you a sense of habit, a sense of practice each day to actually go out and continue to build knowing that like, Hey, I'm building for like grandkids, grandkids. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, for, for my guys, it's, it's so different for each of them, honestly. Um, and I'm actually establishing a framework for development outside of the gym. That's like as tangible as training programming. Um, but for myself personally, I could give an example of the way my mornings are supposed to go. Um, I mean, for me as a Christian, the foundation of everything is the eternal faith. So if I'm not in my prayer practice, if I don't start to do my morning prayer rule for 30 minutes, like, day doesn't go well it just doesn't so 
that's honing that. Um, being the fact that I am a writer and I do a lot of, I gain a lot of the things that I gain. I push a lot of things that I push by being a writer. And the best way to write is to be inspired. Um, so I read for 30 minutes every morning. Um, and then I need to get the body warm. So I've quite literally run or jump up for 30 minutes. And the whole point of that is every part of my being really makes up who I am sort of stoked. Right. I'm warmed up spiritually, I'm warmed up creatively, I'm warmed up physically because in my mind I should be able to write a poem, pray to God with a whole heart, or fight to the death at any given moment in time. That's preparedness, that's being anti-fragile. It's not going to count your pants down. And from there on those basic things that I have on my body, right, these aren't externals, these are internals, um, then I can worry about all the externals after that. I have like a framework schedule. Like I, I tell all my guys to, I, I, I yell at them when they don't send this to me. Like send me your schedule for <laughs> each, like your baseline schedule in a spreadsheet in 15 minute blocks. You'd be shocked about how much you can get done mm -hmm. when you divide everything up into 15 minute blocks because you can be present for 15 minutes. If you book it for an hour, eh, now you're getting not so specific and you're leaving your attention span on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, you kind of distill other things into reps. Like if I message enough people on Instagram, I'll get so many more clients. Um, so many more clients, you know, more revenue I can get, more revenue I get, more results I can get, um, more tangible results than I can, in revenue, I can hire marketers. I can hire marketers, you know, I can get people to finally pay 500 bucks a month like all my fitness colleagues have been saying that I should. But I don't have the marketing power to do so to find those people. If I find those people. Um, then I get to a point where I can start hiring other coaches and training them in the anti-fragile methodology. Have more coaches, it becomes a bigger business. Have more revenue from a bigger Like, it's just, it's going with so on and so forth, right? Yep. Um, but you have to start with your being. If you start, a lot of guys make the mistake of starting with externals. And then they just, they basically completely outsourced all of their decision-making on something that's contingent on whether the externals are there or not. And having gone through poverty and malnourishment and um, returning to the faith and from all those things, plus sleep deprivation, it really put everything into perspective for me. Like if I get those those things on my being right, I will be able to, you know, power through the externals just fine. Love it, man. Well, Arthur, dude, thank you so much for making the time today. I was pumped to be able to catch up with you. And uh, we'll, we'll have to do it more frequently because I told you the other day, like, it, it goes by, so like time goes by, and I'm like, hey, I haven't checked in on him in like six months, what's going on. And then it's too hard to like distill everything that's happened in six months into like one, one hour conversation. <laughs> like we yeah. gotta, you know what I mean? So we got to do it more frequently, but man, thank you for making time and, uh, plug out all of your, your sub stack, the Instagram, all of those things. I'll put them in the show notes, but, um, for people listening, just plug them so everybody can go and follow what you're doing. Thanks a ton, brother. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so like I said before, everything I do goes through Substack now. Um, I had, um, since my girlfriend went through uh, a really tough part of her health journey, um, I have not been writing as much as I should be, and I told people I would, but it looks like this week I'll be able to get back to that schedule now. So Mondays is a solo podcast. Tuesday, I write about combat and strategy. Wednesday, there's a guest podcast. Um, Thursday, I write about masculinity and anti-fragility. Mm -hmm. um, Friday, behind the paywall, um, I have a chapter of a book that I'm writing each week called Sleepless. Um, 
and, which is actually a personal story about how I came back to the faith right before COVID started and right up to the point where I left California, which I scribbled down, you know, 500 words of, showed to my writer friends, I'm like, hey, I got about 600 pages of this. You think this is worth writing? And like, yeah, do it. I was like, all right, cool. I'll write it. All right, um, so that's on Fridays. Saturday, I write about politics and sovereignty. Um, but Sunday, I write about Orthodox Christianity. Friday, I'm also doing a um, Nobel Prize Reading Challenge podcast where I'm, I've been reading one piece from every Nobel Prize winner in literature. Um, and, you know, I break down the piece. I break down their era. I break down, you know, the writer. Um, so that's starting over again this week. So that's what I do each week on Substack. Um, and that is reflected on Twitter um, and Instagram now. As far as anti-fragile fitness goes, um, and that, that platform is called Blood and Rain. As far as anti-fragile fitness goes, um, I think uh, that's really just through the Instagram right now and through Twitter. It's anti.fragile.fitness. You know, you'll see videos of, you know, one, especially this one guy called Abercrombie Matt. Looks like an Abercrombie model, but it's like a lethal <laughs> jiu-jitsu fighter. Um, so I'll be doing more kind of fitness breakdowns about getting at the, method, the whole methodology there. So that's what I do. It's all on those two platforms, Blood and Rain and Anti-Fragile across Substack. Um, YouTube as well, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you again, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate you.